the old pilot's playing tales. Goose is dead. The new Top Gun movie is coming out soon, and I, for one, will be there, hoping to relive some of the great moments from the first movie and hear some more classic lines like... You screw up just this much. You'll be flying a cargo plane full of rubber dog shit out of Hong Kong. And I'll probably excuse most of their flagrant errors as well. The first Top Gun came out in 1986 when I was still flying the F-4 Phantom and with its great music score and brilliant flying sequences most of us forgave the inaccuracies that peppered the movie. The inspiration for the film came from an article by Yehudi Yone in the May 1983 issue of California magazine entitled Top Guns. It's a great article and full of the Navy fighter slang of the period. To quote from the article, That's when it happens. Suddenly a soft voice is saying, Atoll, in the earphones. And by the time Possum spots the little F5 behind them, it's too late. They've been erasing fat, dumb and happy like a dodo bird, and the F5, painted in desert camouflage no less, which stands out against the blue like a billboard, just rolled in. Out of nowhere, got on their tail, and simulated slipping a heat-seeking missile up their exhaust pipe. It started out good, but sure got bad in a hurry, Possum says, laughing. Let me take you back for a moment to the Vietnam War. Things in the air hadn't been going as well as expected for the American Armed Services, and both the USAF commanders and the Chief of Naval Operations wanted an explanation. In the three years between 1965 and 68, the US flew about a million sorties, but had lost almost 1,000 aircraft. The two reports came to significantly different conclusions. The Air Force put its losses primarily down to unobserved MiG attacks from the rear and was therefore, in their minds, a technology problem. The USAF's response was to upgrade the Phantom's weapon system by including an internal M61 Vulcan cannon as well as improving the radar and the tracking capabilities of their Edoair missiles. The Navy took a different attitude, concluding that the problem stemmed from inadequate training in air-to-air combat. This gave birth to the United States Navy Fighter Weapons School, which was established at Naval Air Station Miramar on the 3rd of March 1969. Although it had humble beginnings and scant funding, its aims were more grand. The unit's purpose was to train fighter air crews at the graduate level in all aspects of fighter weapon systems including tactics, techniques, procedures and doctrine. It serves to build a nucleus of eminently knowledgeable fighter crews to construct, guide and enhance weapons training cycles and subsequent aircrew performance. Air crews selected to attend the Top Gun course were chosen from frontline units. Upon graduating, these crews would return to their squadrons to relay what they had learned to their fellow crew members, in essence becoming instructors themselves. 
the Navy's doctrine worked, and their kill-to-loss ratio against the MiGs soared from less than 4 to 1 to 13 to 1, whilst the Air Force's kill ratio actually worsened. However, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, the USAF initiated their own robust air combat training program with the formation of dedicated aggressor squadrons, training I was lucky enough to participate in. The Top Gun course was designed to train already experienced Navy and Marine Corps aircrews in all aspects of strike fighter aircraft employment, including tactics, hardware, techniques, and the current world threat for air-to-air and air-to-ground missions. The current course includes 80 hours of lectures and 25 sorties that pit students against Top Gun instructors. When a pilot or WSO completes the Top Gun course, they return as a training officer carrying the latest tactical doctrine back to their units. Most air forces have their equivalent, and when I was lucky enough to become a qualified weapons instructor, the RAF's course was six months long and considered the toughest flying course in the Royal Air Force. The Top Gun course was five weeks, although it currently runs to nine weeks. I guess us Brits are just slow learners. Back to the movie version of Top Gun. Iceman, for reasons not entirely clear, has one of their opponents cold. He's sitting right on the A-4's tail, but seems completely unable to get a gunshot despite vocal encouragement from all around him. Look at this! I can take a shot right here! I need another 20 seconds, then I've got it. Perhaps being only 30 feet away, he was finding the size of his target intimidatingly large. Goose and Maverick feel sure they can do a better job and try to get Iceman to disengage high right. Come on, Ice, get the hell out of there. Let's do it, Mav. Ice, come off high right. I'm in. Five more seconds. Come off high right, Ice. I'm in. I'm on. Which, after making the daisy chain last just a little bit longer, he does. Apparently unprepared for the manoeuvre he's just called for, Maverick flies through his jet wash, which makes his F-14 bleep a lot and do multiple aileron rolls, which apparently needs both hands on the stick to control. All of this would have any fighter pilot cringing. Now Maverick's engines flame out within a second of each other, and bravo to Goose, who identifies the failures, but then misidentifies them. Number one is on the left, Goose. Where did you wash? Oh, oh it's not good! We got a flame out, ma'am! Engine one is out! Engine two is out! But then I shouldn't speak ill of the dead. Many years of military flying took me through a lot of jet wash, and this hasn't happened to me or anyone I knew, but perhaps the F-14 had a few engine issues. Well, stone the crows. It did. So let's have a little look at that great fighter. The Tomcat was designed as both an air superiority fighter and a long-range naval interceptor, 
With its flexible array of weapons from the N61 Vulcan cannon, the short-range infrared heat-seeking AIM-9 Sidewinders, the longer-range semi-active radar-guided AIM-7 Sparrow, to the ultimate long-range weapon of the time, the AIM-54 Phoenix, it was very well armed. The Phoenix was a remarkable weapon. A version was designed specifically for the Tomcat, and it weighed a thousand pounds, nearly half a metric ton. The F-14 could carry six of them, although a more common mix was two sidewinders, three sparrows, and a pair of phoenixes. Uh, the word phoenix has Greek roots, so the plural goes the same way as appendix, becoming appendices, but sadly phoenixes is gaining traction. Combined with the Tomcat's Org 9 trackwire scan radar, six Phoenixes could be launched simultaneously against six separate targets. The missile would hoof upwards into the stratosphere to around 90,000 feet at nearly Mach 5, whilst getting mid-course guidance from the F-14, and then use its own fully active radar to complete its intercept and go bang. The Phoenix was sold to Iran in 1974 and was credited with 62 kills during the Iran-Iraq War. It had a powerful warhead, and on one occasion a single missile brought down three MiG-23s in a formation and damaged a fourth. Despite trying a few times, the US Navy weren't quite so successful. The F-14 came from the era when variable geometry wings were all the rage, but it also employed large, fixed wing gloves and a very wide fuselage, so that it didn't need the complication of wing-mounted stores that would have to swivel when the wings swept. It carried all its missile housings and pylons on the fuselage or the wing gloves. It reached the Navy's requirement for a Mach 2.4 top speed and was stressed to 7.5G. Again, for simplicity, the wings had no ailerons, which allowed for full-span slats and flaps. To manoeuvre, the Tomcat used its large tailplanes for both pitch and roll, aided by wing-mounted spoilers. The most worrying aspect of the F-14, certainly in the early versions, were the Pratt & Whitney TF-30 engines, the world's first afterburning turbofan. This engine had a challenging start to life that came partly because of a desire to have it power both the F-111 and the F-14. It was underpowered for the job and failed to meet the one-to-one -one power ratio requirement demanded. It was also poorly suited to the rigours of air combat and prone to compressor stalls at high angle of attack, particularly when combined with aggressive throttle movements. So let's give the movie the benefit of the doubt when Maverick manages to stall both his TF-30s. Yeah, sorry, that wouldn't work. He would need to stall just one and leave the other in full blower, then being widely spaced on the Tomcat's broad fuselage and at high level of attack, that might induce enough yaw to enter a spin. OK, whatever. Maverick gets into a spin. So, what's a spin, let alone a flat one? 
To get into a spin, Maverick has first to go through the incipient phase, when the aircraft simply auto-rotates. When his Tomcat yaws, it will have an advancing wing and a retreating wing, and they both need to be at the point of stalling and moving further into a stalled state. The retreating, or inside wing, will be moving slower, and therefore be more stalled than the outside, or advancing wing. So the inside wing has more drag from the stall as well as less lift, which means that the aircraft will continue to yaw and roll into the spin. And the incipient phase lasts a couple of turns, and the aircraft follows a ballistic flight path. This is also the easiest phase to recover from, as merely centralising the controls whilst easing the stick forward is usually enough to unstall the wings and recover. If the spin is allowed to develop, it enters the steady phase, which is self-sustaining. There are now two forces acting on the aircraft, aerodynamic and inertial. If Maverick and Goose are spinning right, the aircraft will be rolling and yawing right, pitching up and side-slipping left. This combination gives the spin its characteristic spiral path towards the ground, the inertial components are like three gyros moving around the aircraft's three axes. Looking down from above, we will see the plan form, which is spinning right and called the C-axis. The pitching force acting on the front of the aircraft will gyroscopically precess through 90 degrees and then act, causing an anti-spin roll force, but not strong enough to overcome pro-spin forces. The rolling force acts on the right wingtip upwards, which precesses through 90 degrees, and forces the nose up, which is a pro-spin force, and it keeps the wings stalled. I won't describe the actions of all three gyros and the six forces acting on them, as it's both tedious and a bit confusing without a chalkboard, but be assured... Depending on the proportion of the mass of the aircraft and the ratio of the forces, particularly the B over A ratio, uh, the B axis is the one through the wings and the A axis runs through the fuselage, an aircraft will be easy or hard to break from a spin. The centre of gravity also has a strong influence, and we can generally say that an aircraft with a forward CFG will be spin-resistant and recovery-prone, whilst a, an aft CFG has the opposite and more dangerous effect. A flat spin is where the axis of spin rotation is a long way back, close to the centre of gravity, and all parts of the aircraft rotate with the same yaw rate. The aircraft looks almost horizontal, but can spin at quite a rate, forcing the pilot and his wizzo against their straps with considerable force. In a flat spin, the aircraft is only going one way, and that's straight down. Mayday, mayday! Mav's in trouble. He's in a flat spin. He's heading out to sea. Recovery from a spin usually requires the wings to be unstalled by applying forward stick, but note that the gyroscopic effect is pro-spin, so this may make the aircraft actually spin faster before the spin breaks. And the rudder needs to be applied in the opposite direction to the rotation, as it's a large control service and has a strong anti-spin effect, which can dominate all others. 
This might seem obvious, but a spin can be very disorientating, particularly inverted spins, and some poor pilots have applied the wrong rudder all the way down to the crash. Ailerons can also have an important effect, depending on the design of the aircraft, but generally in-spin aileron is bad and out-spin aileron good. Just remember, when the spin stops, centralise the rudder and gently ease out of the ensuing dive. I think we can now deduce why Maverick supposedly couldn't get to the ejector seat handles. Perhaps he should have gone to the gym a bit more, or perhaps played some more volleyball. Leaving their combined ejection to his poor Wizzo, who was actually doing a terrible job of calling the height, their altimeter read just over 3,000 feet as he called 6,000, Goose failed to jettison the canopy clear before ejecting. Now, big canopies like the Tomcats are usually lifted into the slipstream by explosive bolts under the rail, and then the air carries it away. However, the F-14 had a Martin Baker Mark GRU-7A seat, which was a rocket-assisted 00 seat, so the jettison system should have been powerful enough for it to catapult the canopy clear before the seat fired. One can only assume that the airflow pattern around the spinning aircraft was sufficient to capture it and keep it close enough to give Goose a headache. They certainly left it late. Even a zero-zero seat will have trouble coping with more than one-tenth of the rate of descent in height, so 30,000 feet per minute going down is around 3,000 feet. Luckily for Maverick, Goose was kind enough to knock the canopy out of the way so that he could appear in the sequel. The inquiry held Maverick blameless. We find that the F-14 flat spin was induced by the disruption of airflow into the starboard engine. This disruption stalled the engine, which produced enough yaw rate to induce a spin which was unrecoverable. I'm not sure I'd have been so quick, particularly having seen both engines fail almost simultaneously. The tragedy of the storyline was actually reflected in real life, as you can see if you watch the credits, where the last line states, This film is dedicated to the memory of Art Scholl. Art was an American aerobatic pilot, aerial cameraman, flight instructor, an educator based in Riverside, Southern California. He was well-known and hugely popular with airshow crowds, where he performed in his super chipmunk, often flying with his dog, Aileron, in the cockpit. His aerial camera work had appeared in many commercials, TV shows and films, including The Right Stuff, The Great Waldo Pepper, Blue Thunder, The A-Team Chips and Iron Eagle, as well as Top Gun. On the 16th of September 1985, he was filming from his Pitts S2 camera plane and intentionally entered a spin to capture footage for the very scene in the film that I've been talking about. As his aircraft passed the planned recovery altitude, he transmitted his final words. I have a problem. I have a real problem. After which, the plane impacted the ocean about five miles off the coast. The exact cause was never established, nor his body or the aircraft ever recovered. Whatever you take from this tale, please remember that a spin is an extreme manoeuvre 
and potentially deadly. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.